Amen. Matthew chapter 7 is probably one of the most famous portions of Scripture, one of the most well-known portions of Scripture. I'm sure many of your co-workers have these verses memorized, whether they're saved or not saved. Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 says, Judge not that you be not judged. And many people, they just take it out of Scripture there, out of um, context, and they just tell you, hey, don't judge me, bro. Right? They'll tell you, only God can judge me. I always feel like you're judging me, and you don't know who I really am. So important for us to know the full context here of this Sermon on the Mount. So let's read these first five verses. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Sadly, many, many believers and non-believers, they take this scripture out of context to just leave everyone alone. Let everyone live however they want to live and think what they think and feel what they feel. We can't judge anyone. Only God can judge. We know that's not true because later on in verse 18 through 20, Jesus tells us a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into a fire. Therefore, by their fruits... You will know them. So here Jesus in verse 1 tells us not to judge. But by verse 18, he's commanding us to examine fruit or to be fruit judgers. Basically, judge the fruit in someone's life. In John chapter 7 verse 24, Jesus will tell the Pharisees, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 15, Paul tells us, He who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Finally, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21, it tells us, Test all things and hold fast to what is good. So can we gather that God is telling us to just judge no one? No, not at all. We know that God's word calls us to inspect the fruit in a person's life. God instructs us to judge with righteous judgment and to test all things. True love judges one another. David Guzik, he says, The Christian is called to show unconditional love, but the Christian is not called to unconditionally approve. We really can love people who do things that should not be approved of. This is what agape love looks like, that we don't just write someone off because they're doing something we don't like. We can still love them even though we don't approve of their choices, their lifestyle, or their actions. You can love someone without approving of all that they do. 
What Jesus is telling us here is not to not judge anyone. What Jesus is commanding us to do here is to not criticize one another. No one is called to be the Christian critic, constantly searching for faults within brothers and sisters and even unbelievers. We are not to look at people through a lens which portrays them in the worst possible light. That critical spirit is not becoming of a kingdom-bound son or daughter. And, and in our flesh, in our natural instincts, is that not exactly what we do? Someone does something to us and right away we paint them in the worst picture possible. Someone cuts you off in traffic, there's only one thing to gather, right? They're just a jerk. That's all there is. They're just a terrible person. It's not that they have an emergency or they have someone in a hospital or something bad happened and they're in a rush to get somewhere. Oftentimes we assume the worst in people, but we need to be reminded of who our father is and how he acts. We should ask ourselves, whose son or daughter are you? Satan, in Revelation 12.10, is called the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before our God day and night. Are we giving Satan the day off because we're accusing one another? We're assuming the worst in our brothers and sisters. We can be reminded of Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. The beginning of this same sermon, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6 and 7. This chapter of love tells us love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, and love endures all things. We are to see our brothers and sisters and even judge them, but through the lens of love, through the lens that Jesus Christ looks at us. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 12 tells us, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. When we're dealing with a brother or sister, are we picking up every single one of their faults? Are we being nitpicky? Or do we allow love to cover their blemishes? Not that we're covering over their sin and hiding it, but we look past their sin and we see one another in the way that God looks at us. Even though you may think you've been called to be the church fault finder, or the church sin sniffer, God has not called you to do so. God has called us to be merciful because we need mercy. We can turn to Luke chapter 6. This is Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount, of the Beatitudes. Some believe Jesus taught this same sermon many times and on multiple occasions, speaking about the kingdom of heaven. But in Luke chapter 6, verse 36, it says, Therefore be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. 
Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Our judgment should have mercy and forgiveness all wrapped up in it. We don't bend at the truth. We don't twist the truth. We stand for the truth and righteousness, but we do so with the love of the Father and the mercy that Jesus has given to us. There's no doubt that there's Pharisees within this crowd, and Jesus is commanding us to steer clear from the spirit of a Pharisee who's always looking down at other people. Sadly, many believers, many Christians think that being saved gives you a license to feel holier than thou and to look down at others instead of remembering where we've come from. David Guzik says, according to the teaching of some rabbis in Jesus' time, God had two measures to judge people. One measure was a measure of justice and the other measure was a measure of mercy. And now whichever measure you want God to use with you, you should use that same measure with others. Brothers and sisters, which measuring tape do you pull out when you want to measure a brother or a sister? When you want to measure a stranger? Oftentimes we are so hypocritical when it comes to mercy versus justice. Easy scenario for most of us to realize. When you're driving and you see those red and blue lights behind you, what's your prayer all of a sudden? Oh, God, have mercy on me, right? Whatever the case may be, God, mercy, God, grace. But now when you're sitting on the 836 and you've been sitting in traffic for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, just gridlock, bumper to bumper, and all of a sudden you see someone going 60 miles an hour down the emergency lane, what does your prayer sound like? Wrath and judgment, oh Lord. Destroy them. Can't the cop get them right away? We oftentimes pull out the measuring tape of mercy for ourselves, but upon others, we want the full extent of justice and the law. Instead, God wants us to be honest. God wants us to use the same measuring tape for us, for our spouse, for our children, and even for our enemies. However, if we choose to use justice on others and the full extent of the law on others here Jesus is warning us that's the very same measuring tape that's going to be used on you in this life and in the next a great quote by Alexander McLaren he says a cynical critic cannot expect his victims to be profoundly attached to him or to be ready to be lenient to his own failings If he chooses to fight with a tomahawk, he will be scalped someday, and the bystanders will not lament profusely. But a more righteous tribunal than that of his victims condemns him. For in God's eyes, the man who covers not his neighbor's faults with the mantle of love has not his own blotted out by divine forgiveness." You see, family, in view of the blood of Jesus Christ that has washed away our sins, how can we not choose to look past the sins of our brothers and sisters or spouses or children? The the people who have hurt us, we need to be able to look past their sins and forgive them. 
I mentioned it at the end of the last sermon, but one thing that plagues so many churches and Christians is the decision to not forgive and the decision to not come up to a person and say, this is what's going on in my life. This is what's going on in your life. We refuse to be real and be honest and Matthew 18 someone, and we also refuse to forgive someone. And as Christians, that's exactly what we're called to do. We're called to call out a brother or sister in love, and we are called to forgive with the same measure that Jesus Christ has forgiven us. If you're that brother or sister that's prone to think that you're the spiritual Batman always pulling justice and darkness on your fellow brothers and sisters, just remember Proverbs 16 verse 2. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. At the end of the day, the God of heaven and earth that can see your motives, your spirit, and your darkest points and your darkest places, he's going to be the one to judge you. What kind of a judgment do you want? Do you want his full grace and mercy or do you want his full extent of the law? One last scripture on this, James chapter 2 verse 13. James tells us, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. May we be merciful with our brothers and sisters. Why? Because we've received so much mercy and we still need so much mercy. Now in verses 3 and 4, Jesus gives us a comical analogy to demonstrate what he's speaking about with our judgment towards one another. In verse 3 he says, Why do you look at the speck, or that could also be splinter, in your brother's eye? But do not consider the plank in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, Let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Could you imagine having a two-by-four in your eye? And you're trying to affect and pull the speck, the splinter out of your brother's eye? You would knock them unconscious. That's what would happen. If you had a telephone pole in your eye and you're trying to turn, and oh, let, let me help you out here. And here what Jesus is pointing to is just how quick we are to find faults in others. And yet, how slow and blind we are to see the large and obvious faults and sin within our own lives. How quick we are to point the finger. But we can be reminded there's always three pointing back at us. And as Pastor Raz would say, what goes up must come down. So all four of them are pointing back at you. We need to deal with that telephone pole, with that plank within our own eye. That's why Jesus says in verse 5, hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Charles Spurgeon says, Jesus is gentle, but he calls that man a hypocrite who fusses about small things in others and pays no attention to great matters at home in his own person. Jesus would tell the Pharisees who caught the woman in adultery 
The Pharisees set up this plan. They catch a man and a woman in adultery. For some reason, they let the man go. They drag the woman out in front of everyone in the public place. They draw this woman out naked. They throw her on the floor, and they tell Jesus, what should we do with her? And what does Jesus say in John 8, verse 7? He who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone. And what happens, oldest to youngest, all the Pharisees, they slowly creep away, right? Because they know we've all sinned. We've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We can think of David, a man after God's own heart. The psalmist of Israel, he had a huge plank in his own eye. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He attempted to cover up his adultery on three different occasions, pulling Uriah away from the war, trying to get him to sleep with Bathsheba. Uriah, he's such a man of righteousness, such a man of standing for what's right and being there for others that he refuses to go home. So David, instead of confessing sin or repenting, chooses to murder Uriah on the front lines and in that decision also kills other soldiers as well. A year has passed. David thinks he's gotten away with it. And the prophet Nathan comes to David to ask him, how should we judge a man? There's this man within Israel, a very rich man, that stole a poor man's lamb and cooked it and ate it. David, how should we respond to this man? How should we respond to this sin? And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 5 through 6, it tells us, David's anger was so greatly aroused against that man that he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. We know the law of the Lord. If you steal, you don't die. If you steal, you have to repay it back. But David is blinded to his own sin. And because he's blinded to his own sin, he cannot properly deal with the sin in someone else. David, Nathan tells David in verse 7, 2 Samuel 12, David, you are that man. You are that man. You see, Jesus is not calling us to just leave our brothers and sisters alone. Jesus, he does not want every believer walking on eggshells and just putting their hands up and saying, oh, I can't say anything to anyone else because I'm a sinner as well. What Jesus desires is for us to deal with the splinters and the planks and the sin and the unrighteousness in our lives in the same way that we deal with the sin and the unrighteousness and the planks and the splinters in the eyes of our brothers and sisters. A couple weeks ago, we were at a playground with all of my kids, and there was this large tower. It was an enclosed tower. It was about 25 feet in the air, and then there was a slide at the end of it. And my daughter, Ella, she's climbing up the, the rope ladder to go up. There's another child ahead of her, and I guess some sawdust fell in her eye. So as she's climbing, she's about 20 feet up. She's three-quarters of the way there. She starts freaking out, crying, Dad, Dad, there's something in my eye. I'm like, you're already up there, so you got to finish you got to slide down. She can be prone to being very overreactive, but she was legit this time. When I look at her eye, there is a leaf that's the, half the size of a penny in her eye. It almost covers her whole, uh, 
her whole retina. It's almost covering the whole thing. So, uh, oof, this is serious. So I took her to the side where we prayed with her. We calmed her down. Amanda's holding her. And I'm being very careful. And I slowly get it to her eyelid and get it off, telling her, don't scratch, don't rub. You don't want to scratch anything. And we finally got it out. Yet when we deal with the sins in our brothers and sisters, are we not a bit brutal with them? Are we so careful to take the time to pray and wait and pray for them, pray for ourselves, and to carefully pull that splinter out? No, we just go crazy. We just act in our frustration. We act in our anger, and now we tell them everything that's wrong with them. And how well does that go over? How well does that go over in our marriages or with our children? Instead of waiting for the proper time, being filled with the Spirit, allowing the planks out of our eyes being taken away to then calmly confront and deal with the sin in our brothers' and sisters' lives, we just go crazy and we're all brutal. This is what Jesus is calling us to do, to be careful to examine our own lives. As the psalmist would say in Psalm 26 to examine me, O Lord, and prove me, try my mind and my heart. Sin in our brothers' and sisters' lives, go to the Lord. Ask Him to search your heart. Ask Him to purify you, to purify the planks and the splinters out of your eyes so that then we can see properly and deal with the specks and the splinters in the eyes of our brothers and sisters. We could turn to Galatians chapter 6. And here I think is one of the best New Testament examples in how we should deal with the sin in our brothers and sisters. Again, we need to do better at confronting one another in love and we need to do better at forgiving one another in love as well Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 through 5 it says brethren if a man is overtaken in any trespass you who are spiritual look down on them Judge them. Mock them. No, he says, hey, you think you're spiritual. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. So what we should do when we have a brother, a sister, a spouse, a son or a daughter that's caught up in sin or trespasses, we should seek to restore them. We should seek to mend that broken bone. To heal them, to see them spiritually healthy once again, considering ourselves. Being reminded of who you once were before Jesus Christ. Being reminded of the sins you used to do. The person used to be, consider that lest you also be tempted and examine our own work. God doesn't want us to walk on eggshells and just put our hands up and not confront anyone. God wants us to first confront the sin in our own lives and then confront the sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters. 
Back to Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. It says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and in turn tear you in pieces. He tells us in, one, in verses 1 through 5, do not be critical in your judgment. Yet here he's telling us, hey, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater either. We need to be wise and to discern the people that we're dealing with. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus tells us, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. God wants us to use discernment. The word gullible is in the Bible dictionary. It's there. And sadly, many believers will find their picture next to it. That word gullible is there. We should not be gullible as believers. We should be spirit-filled. Charles Spurgeon, he says, You are not to judge, but you are not to act without judgment. Saints are not to be simpletons. They are not to be judges, but also they are not to be fools. We're not to be foolish. We're not to be just a simpleton. We're not to just live this life, kumbaya, peace out, everybody's okay, everybody's is good, and it's fine. No, we need to be asking God for the gift of discerning of spirits, and then we need to exercise that spiritual sense to truly see if a person is a sheep, if he's a prodigal, if he's a hurt person, or if they're a dog or a swine. And depending on who they are, our interaction with them needs to be different. That's what Jesus tells us. We could turn to Hebrews chapter 5. If your fingers are tired from turning to Scripture, you can hang out here. We'll be back in Matthew 7. But in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 through 14... The author of Hebrews is going to speak about those who are spiritually mature versus those who are spiritually immature and the differences, the habits, the feeding of each of these groups of believers. In verse 12, Hebrews chapter 5, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now, in staying in context of Scripture, first and foremost, we need to exercise our senses to discern good and evil in our lives, first and foremost. We need to pay attention to what am I consuming? What am I watching? Who am I hanging out with? Is this good and is this evil for me? But then after that, we need to use that discernment for the people that we're interacting with. The people that we're talking with, we need to have a healthy diet of God's word and then we need to exercise our spiritual discernment to know that holy things are only for holy men and holy women. 
Again, staying within the context, there are certain people that we should correct and we should speak out to. And there's certain people that you're better off just zipping your lips and praying for them. Praying for them, saying, Lord, open their eyes. Lord, open their ears. Give them understanding to where they truly are at with you. In ancient Eastern cultures, dogs were not so cuddly and cute as they are today. I don't know if any dogs had socks or shoes. I don't know if any dogs had jackets or outfits or costumes. I don't know if anything like that happened. J.B. Lightfoot, he tells us, The dogs which prowled about eastern cities prowled about without a home and without an owner. They would feed on the refuse and the filth of the streets. They would quarrel among themselves and attack those who were passing by. If you come in contact with a group of wild dogs, hopefully you have the discernment to back away instead of saying, can I pet the cute dog? Hopefully you have that discernment. Jews would use the word dog as a derogatory term for Gentiles. In the book of Acts, Paul would take this term and he would turn it back onto the religious Jews. David would say in 1 Samuel 24 verse 14 to King Saul, After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? And all throughout scripture, dogs stand for the lowest of the low. And we need to have discernment to realize, is it best? Is it best for my time? Is it best for the word of God to try and correct someone right now? Or is it better for me to just stay quiet and pray? We need to use that discernment. David Brown, he says, Religion is brought into contempt and its professors insulted when it is forced upon those who cannot value it and will not have it. Can someone who's drunk and high and plastered, can they pray to receive the Lord in their heart? Yeah, they they can. God can totally do that. Is it the best use of your time to start preaching the spiritual laws and the Romans road to someone who's drunk and plastered and hammered? Probably not. There's probably better uses of your time. And that's here what Jesus is telling us to have discernment. To not look at our noses down at someone, but to judge where they're at and to give them the proper medicine for where they're at with the Lord. It tells us to not cast our pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Family, be wise. Use discernment. Don't be so gullible. Pay attention to your surroundings. And if you don't have discernment, pray to the Lord. James tells us if you lack wisdom, cry out to God and your Father in heaven. He desires to give wisdom liberally to all those who ask. Correcting someone, sharing the gospel with someone. These are very good and important things that we should be doing as believers on a consistent basis. But if that person is a dog or a swine, it's oftentimes better to hold your tongue and simply pray for them. Pray that the Lord would open their eyes and soften their hearts. That the Lord would change them from being a dog and a swine to one day be a sheep that's a part of his fold. We need to pray for discernment so we can give the proper medicine in the proper timing. Now Jesus begins to speak about prayer once again. 
This isn't the first time he's spoken about prayer on the Sermon on the Mount. We already went through the Lord's Prayer. But now he tells us in verse 7 and 8, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Our prayer life is something that is to be filled with action. It needs to be filled with action. It's not just a one and done type of thing. It's not something that should be filled with zero emotion. You're just Eeyore sitting on a corner. Oh, Lord. Would you please do this? I prayed once. I don't have to pray again. Not at all. God desires that we continually ask Him. That's the wording here in the Greek. Ask and continually ask. Seek and continually seek. Knock and continually be knocking. And everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. What does everyone mean in the Greek? It means everyone. What a joy for us. You see, it's not the most spiritually high that receive answered prayers. You just got saved. Oh, I don't have my card yet. I got to wait a couple years, put in my time, and then God will start answering my prayers. No, the Lord, He answers everyone's prayers. He's going to answer your prayers, whether you're the most spiritual or whether you just got saved. Whether you're backslidden or whether you've just never been more on fire for the Lord. Adam Clark tells us to ask with confidence and humility, to seek with care and application, to knock with earnestness and perseverance. Our Heavenly Father, He desires for His sons and daughters to continually come to Him and come to Him and come to Him. Charles Spurgeon says, Yet the image of knocking also implies that there is a door that can't be opened. His doors are meant to open. They were made on purpose for entrance. And so the blessed gospel of God is made on purpose for you to enter into life and peace. It would be no use to knock at a wall, but you may wisely knock at a door, for it is arranged for opening. Our Lord wants to give. Our Lord, our Father, wants to bless In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and must believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Are we diligently seeking the Lord our God? Sometimes we can get frustrated. Man, I prayed for this. It didn't happen. How many times did you pray? Once. I prayed for a week. Oftentimes say, man, I I was reading my Bible and I never heard from the Lord. How consistently were you reading? Three days and I gave up on it. We need to continually be asking, be seeking, and be knocking. If we are half-hearted in what we ask the Lord, why should He answer our half-hearted pleas? I'm sure many of the parents here, that we go through the same thing. You're walking through a mall, your child sees something new for the first time ever in their life, and now all of a sudden, that's all they need in life. They never knew it existed, they never realized that there was such a thing, it's at the dollar store, it's plastic, it's going to break in half a minute, but they need it. 
If a day goes by and a week goes by and they don't ask for it again, I'm, I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to ponder on it. But if my son or daughter asks me for the same thing over and over and over and over again, my desire, if it's not going to harm them, if it's not going to hurt them, it's to bless them with these things. So if we are randomly and rarely crying out to our Father and asking Him for things, if we are half-hearted about it, why would He answer our prayer? Jesus, He says many bold things when it comes to prayer. In John chapter 14, verse 13 through 15, He says, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. The blessing, he says, ask whatever you want. Ask whatever you want. It will happen. I will do it. Now, it's interesting, the wording here, it's just like a wise father. He doesn't say, hey, whatever you want, I'm going to give you. He just says, whatever you ask, you're going to get an answer. Whatever you seek, you're going to find. When you knock, the door is going to be open to you. Jesus is going to speak to us more as what is it that we're going to receive? What is it that we're going to find? What is it that we're going to have opened to us? And it is good things. Good things. In verse 9 it says, Or what man is there among you? If his son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then being evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? If we are sinful, if we get frustrated as parents, if we act out in the flesh as parents and yet we know how to give our kids good things, how much more does our perfect Father in heaven know how to give us good things. How much more? And Jesus, he leaves it open-ended here for us on purpose. He wants us to sit and meditate and think about how much more does our perfect Father care for us and love us. He wants us to meditate on these things. He's not going to trick us or give us something that would harm us. I get so angry. I know I'm not the only one. Have you ever heard someone say, hey, don't pray for God's will to be done in your life? Because he's going to make you a missionary in some random country in Zimbabwe, right? In Africa, and you're going to hate your life, and there's going to be no AC and mosquitoes, and that's what God's going to do to you. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Don't pray for God's will in your life because he's going to make you single. You're going to be a nun for the rest of your life, right? I, I get so angry with that. Because what we are saying is that our Father in heaven wants to trick us. He wants to scheme and pull the rug out from under us and he's going to do things that we don't want, that are going to harm us, that are going to destroy us. And that's not what a good or a perfect father does. A perfect father gives his sons and daughters good things. Even when we ask for serpents or stones, a good father knows to give bread and fish instead. Thank God that he hasn't answered every one of our prayers. Amen? Amen in my life. There are many times you hear people praying completely unbiblical prayers. Someone is living in sin, they're sleeping around, and yet they're praying, Lord, I pray that you would bless this and that this would turn into a marriage. Are you kidding me? It's completely unbiblical. It's completely sinful. How could you pray a prayer like this? You don't want God to answer a prayer like that. 
You don't want him to do so. But he is a perfect father who knows to give good things to those who ask him. In James chapter 4, verse 3, it tells us, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. What you're asking for in prayer, is it for your own pleasure? Is it just to feed your flesh? Is it just what's comfortable? Or are we praying like Jesus, Father, your will, not my will, but your will be done. We need to be seeking and asking over and over and over again. And know that God, he wants to, he desires to give you good things. Now the full and true application of this, especially in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, this is all together. So proper context here is if, if we're struggling with forgiving someone else as God has forgiven us, Pray and ask him for that power. Lord, would you help me to forgive this person? You're struggling with being merciful, realizing how much mercy you need? Ask the Lord. You're struggling with being perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect? Ask the Lord. Ask God for these good things and he will give it to you. Just got to keep asking. Got to keep seeking him. And you're going to meet not just these good things, but you're going to meet the Father in a deeper way. He's not just going to give you the things you ask for. He's going to give you more of himself. And the more that you have of him in your life, it is truly the greatest thing out there. Verse 12, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This comes at almost a curveball here. And yet many religions and laws are founded upon a very similar saying. They tell us, do not do to others as you don't want them to do unto you. But here, once again, Jesus desiring for our righteousness to exceed the Pharisees. Jesus always taking it, pushing it to the limit. He puts us into the offensive and the proactive path of action. Instead of just sitting on the sidelines and not doing to others as we don't want them to do to us, he tells us, do. Do unto others as you want them to do unto you. And this really hits home within the church. Are you annoyed that no one says hi to you at church? What should you do? You should be the church greeter. You should be saying hi to everybody at church. You're annoyed nobody wants to fellowship with you and break bread with you after church? What should you be doing? Hey, can I buy you that pork bowl after service tonight? I heard I twice fried maludos on top of it. Let's go have someone. You're annoyed no one's inviting you over their home. You're annoyed no one is being friendly to you. Go out and be friendly. Go out and invite others to your home. If it can hit a bit harder, you're frustrated that your spouse isn't loving you the way that you want to be loved. They're not forgiving you the way you want to be forgiven. They're not respecting you the way you want to be respected. You go out and you do it first. You love them the way you want to be loved. You respect them the way you desire to be respected. You forgive them the way you desire to be forgiven. Imagine if the whole world would live by this. Imagine. You wouldn't have to lock the doors. You would have no fear. There'd be no, no stealing, no lying, no murder. There'd be no sex trafficking, no war. There would just be love and forgiveness and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control all over our world. But yet we are in a sinful state. 
James chapter 4, verse 17 hits this home. It says, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. If we know the right thing to do in a situation and we don't do it, it's sinful to us. Right? It's not enough to just obey the traffic laws. Now, if we see someone that's in need, we should be going out there and helping them. Because if we were in need, what would we want? This is the ante that Jesus raises the righteousness and the way that we should be living. Verse 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. I think it's important for us to remind ourselves of this, and especially for the parents here, that we'd remind our children of this, and we would remind ourselves of the scripture when it comes to our kids as well. Narrow and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few that find it. All roads and all paths and all gates do not lead to heaven. That's what Jesus is telling us here. It's a slim gate, it's a slim path, and it's a difficult path. This is the only way to life and that abundantly. It's a narrow gate, it's a small gate. That's the way you get life and that abundantly. It's a difficult way, it's a difficult path. It's not that it's a tough way in and then it opens up. No, it's tough in and it's tough all the way out till we see him face to face. But if you do what's easiest, if you do what's most comfortable, if you look for the wide gate and the broad way, where does it lead? Only to destruction. And sadly, there are many who go in by it. We have to be prepared to go against the current. We should not be surprised when we're going against the crowds because that's exactly what Jesus is telling us. Crowds in Scripture don't have a good reputation. In the Old Testament, the crowds, the multitudes, they murmured and complained about Moses and about the God that freed them from slavery, provided them light and warmth at the night, shade and coolness by day, food and water every single day. And what did the crowds do? They murmured and complained. The crowds had a chance to release Jesus from prison. But what did the crowds do? They cried out for Barabbas to be freed and for Jesus to be crucified. We need to be prepared to go against this culture and be ready to be hated, not because we're jerks, not because we're mean, but to be hated because we are biblical. That's what we need to be ready for. Because we speak the truth In love, we need to be ready to go against the culture, against the current, and go through that little gate and that difficult way all the path, all the way, until we receive life and that abundantly. It's going to be difficult. We're going to be hated for his namesake, but then we receive life and that abundantly. Verse 15 Once again, telling us to discern, he tells us, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. All over 2 Timothy, Paul warns his son in the faith, Timothy, that in latter times, 
dangerous times will come. Uh, the false prophets, the false teachers, the false churches are just going to get worse and worse and worse. And one of the reasons they're going to grow worse is because people are just going to be looking for what makes them feel good. They're going to look for teachers that scratch their itching ears that are telling them what they want to hear. Here Jesus is telling us false prophets oftentimes will look like a real prophet. Wolves will oftentimes look like a sheep. Unfortunately, false prophets don't walk around with a name tag that says, Hi, my name is false prophet. But we need discernment. We need discernment. William Barclay says the basic fault of the false prophet is self-interest. Self-interest. They're just looking for what's best for them. Why do you think they want you to give your money when they have a Rolex, 20 suits, and two planes? And yet you, you want to be blessed that you give more money, right? Why don't you sell one of those Rolexes? You got plenty of money there. Sell one of those jets. No, they are looking out for their own interests instead of the interests of others. We could think of Saul versus David. How Saul was fueled by self-interest. He was consumed with building up Saul's kingdom. While David was concerned with God's interests. A man after God's own heart. We can look at this more closely and we can get better eyes to see false prophets. He tells us that they come to us in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. We need to pay attention to the diet of the prophets in our lives. Pay attention to the diet of the people in your lives, the believers and the so-called believers in your life. If you look at a pasture and you see dozens of sheep sitting there eating grass, they're sheep. But if you look at a sheep and there's another sheep in his mouth, he's a wolf. He's not a sheep. We need to pay attention to the diet of the believers and of the prophets around us. The people that we follow on social media, we need to test the fruits. Verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. We need to judge their diet. We need to judge the fruit of their living, the fruit of their family, the fruit of their life, and the fruit of their ministry. And in keeping with this portion of Scripture, first and foremost, who should we judge? Ourselves. What's the fruit of your life? What does your diet look like? Are you chewing up other believers, chewing them up, spitting them out? Or are you chewing on the word of the Lord? What's the fruit of your influence on your family? What's the fruit of your life? What's the fruit of your ministry? We need to consider all these things. Charles Spurgeon, he says, It's not merely the wicked, the bearer of poison berries that will be cut down, but the neutral, the man who bears no fruit of positive virtue must also be cast into the fire. If we are bearing good fruit, you're going to be a good tree. If you're bearing no fruit, you're not a good tree either. We need to bear fruits worthy of repentance. We need to be bearing the fruit of the Spirit. 
Sadly, oftentimes these churches that go wayward, you hear about the pastor exploding on people behind the scenes, screaming at people, throwing chairs, throwing phones. Is that the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Is that what patience looks like or self-control? We need to look at that fruit. But again, in keeping with the context, let's look at the logs within our own eyes first. What's my diet? What's the fruit of my life? My children, the way they're acting and behaving. How have I affected that? Now, if they're 18, if they're older, then it's on them. If they're living on your home, it's still on you. But what is the fruit of your life? What's the fruit of your ministry? There's a lot here, but may we just grow in biblical discernment. May we grow in speaking the truth, but in love. Not looking down at other people, reminding ourselves of where we've come from. Reminding ourselves of how much grace and mercy I need, but also to hold the line. To confront in love when we need to confront, and to be quick to forgive others when it's time to forgive. So let's pray. Worship team, you can come up. And pastors, you guys can come up as well. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word, and Lord, how it's applicable 2,000 years ago, and God, how it's applicable to us today. And Lord, we're, we're asking We're seeking, Lord. We're knocking. These attributes are so difficult, Lord. They're impossible for us in our own natural state. Lord, we need to be renewed by you. Lord, we need that renewing of our minds. Lord, we need you to renew our heart, to pull out this heart of stone and of thorns. And God, we're asking you to create in us a clean heart, Lord. Renew a steadfast spirit within us, Lord. We can't do this on your own to be the fathers that you've called us to be and the mothers, the, the spouses, the sons and daughters that you've called us to be. Lord, we need you to fill us to overflowing with your Holy Spirit, Lord, that's filled with power and love and discipline. So, Lord, would you strengthen us to be able to go against the current, Lord? Strengthen us to not only enter the narrow gate, but to continue on the difficult path that leads to life and that abundantly. So Lord, just be with us, strengthen us, God. And Lord, if anyone here, if they're just struggling, just struggling with unforgiveness, Lord. Lord, if anyone is here struggling with calling out someone that they love, Lord, to set up a meeting, Lord, to set up a, a time to speak the truth and love to someone that they care about and into their life. Lord, just, just fill us. Fill us. Help us to be obedient to you and to your word. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. We love you and we thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, let's all stand.